those of you just joining us, we have decided as a class that we're going to focus on the laborers and the vineyard. And then if we have time, we'll go back to the rich young ruler and talk about riches and salvation. Who then can be saved? Can any rich man be saved? We'll see if we have time for that. But let's start with the laborers in the vineyard. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, one of my absolute favorite parables, but you've got to learn to dig a little bit. Here's the thing. Here's the skill set. You know Jesus has given us a full set of scriptures, and he is inviting us to apply all truth whenever there's a parable. No parable stands alone as teaching all the doctrines. There's always a balance that has to be applied. So what is the main point of the parable? And then let's pull in everything we know from revealed religion. That's going to be important today. Because it seems to me the great aha moment of this parable is what you know about Heavenly Father. And can therefore say, okay, today's my fair day. I get that. I trust him. Because I know my mercy moment is coming. There's the doctrine I can hold on to in a dark day. And so as we study these parables, let's apply everything we know in all of the gospels. So Matthew chapter 20, that's the gist of the parable, right? Someone owns a, a, a vineyard. I need to hire laborers to go work in it. So I go out at 6 a.m. and I hire however many I can. I, I hire a large group and they're going to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was reasonable in that day. That was kind of the expectation. You're going to work all day. And the standard rate, kind of the labor laws of the time, so to speak, is that I would get paid one penny. They agreed to that. That's fair. You'll pay me a penny? Great. I'll come to work for you. That's a reasonable expectation to work that long and get paid a penny. And then the Lord of the Vineyard goes out at 9 a.m. And finds people who hadn't been hired. They've been sitting around for three hours. And he said, why are you sitting around? Well, no one hired you. I'll hire you. And he says, you work as long as you, you work for the rest of the day. And what does he say? I will pay you what's right. Doesn't give him a quote. He says, I'll pay you what's right. And then he goes out again at noon. And he says, I will pay you. You're going to work till 6 p.m. And I'll pay you what's right. Then he goes out at 3. And he finds people who hadn't been hired. He says, hey, I still have some things you can do in my vineyard. Work for me for the last three hours of the day. And I'll pay you. I'll pay you what's fair. And then he goes out at 5 p.m. And he finds a group of people that hadn't been paid or hadn't been hired. He says, I will hire you. You go work for the last hour of the day. And whatever's right, I'll pay. Now, here's the problem. As human beings, we have certain expectations from God. What is it that the 5 p.m.ers expected from God? A twelfth of a penny, right? That's the blessing I expect. So I'm going to ask you, what are some of the blessings 
you expect from God? What do you expect your Heavenly Father to do in your life? What are the expected blessings? Have the Holy Ghost. And, and make that mental list. I think some people, no, you that's great. That's fantastic. Um, let me push that a little bit. Careful. Do you expect always to have the Holy Ghost and never not feel it? No. Are there some who do expect that? And that's where I'm going. Do you have expectations that need to be examined? For example, do you expect Heavenly Father to take every, way, every pain away? Do you expect Heavenly Father to take heaven, heaven, every pain away? But we kind of act like we do, don't we? And when we're in pain, what are some of the things we typically say when we're in pain? Oh. Well, well, I didn't expect this. So you see the dilemma we have here? We say and we hold sometimes different expectations. I don't expect an easy life. But at the same time, when troubles come, I kind of act like what? What? This isn't what I expected. And so let's talk about that. We're going to shake these expectations up and see if we can get to some real truths here. They expected a penny. They expected probably a twelfth of a penny. They expected half a penny, right? And that's reasonable. Our expectations based are, are based on reasonable assumptions. I know the Holy Ghost has been promised. I expect the Holy Ghost. You expect it all the time. Well, I don't expect to have that burning constantly. Okay, so what does that mean? And then watch what happens when he pays one group. What was their expectation all day long? All day long. The whole time they were laboring, what was their expectation? Penny. Reasonable? Absolutely. And then, who's he going to pay first? He's going to pay this group first. And what does he pay them? A penny. One penny. Now, that fast, what happened? That fast. Tell me what happened. When they got a penny. Wait a minute. Now I expect something else, right? What happened in their heads when those guys got paid a penny? I had, they worked an hour. I worked 12. You paid them a penny. Now, all of a sudden, I expect how much? 12 pennies. Now, how much did they get? Everyone in Matthew 20? How much did the six AMers get? One penny. And now, hold on. What would they have said when they got a penny? 
If they had been paid first and got a penny, what would they have said? Great. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Great. Why are they upset now? As soon as they got paid a penny, these guys are no longer content with their penny. Why? Okay, so part of the challenge we face as Heavenly Father's children is he is dealing with me individually, and you're watching him deal with me. He's dealing with you individually, and I'm watching. And one of the, th the, one of the things I think this parable is trying to say is be very careful when you watch what Heavenly Father is doing in someone else's life. You have no idea that story. And all of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to compare, and what he's doing in that life is going to create expectations and disappointments in your life. The 12, the 12, the, the 6 a.m.ers were angry and disappointed because God did something good to someone else. Now, do you see what he's trying to say? Why are you shaking your head? What are you thinking? Because it's not it's fair, or it's not fair, but at the same time, it is. It's kind of and there's a dilemma, right? Part of my heart is saying what? Part of my heart is saying, I shouldn't be upset when God is kind to someone else. But at the same time, what am I really saying? I was here all day. That's not fair. That's not fair. And so you see why we struggle with this parable? Okay, I get it. I get the lesson. Don't be offended at God's mercy to someone else. I understand that. And Elder Holland gave a great talk on this parable that, that I should never be offended at mercy. Clearly, he said, clearly, the, God's favorite thing about being God is the ability to be merciful. And I shouldn't be upset. I love the language here. Let's read it. Starting in verse 9, when they, when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. And when the first came, they, see the word is, supposed. They supposed that they should re receive more. Why? One of the dueling truths in my head is God shouldn't be more kind to you than he is to me. Now, do you believe that's the truth? If God in the end is more kind to you than to me, is he God? No. We believe that our Heavenly Father is no respecter of persons and doesn't treat anyone with favoritism. So the truth in my head says God has to be fair to all of us. The problem, though, is that can't mean at every moment. I have to grant God the right to bless you when you need it and me when I need it. The problem here is that this was fair. This was fair. 
It wasn't overly generous. It was fair. God was being fair to this group. What was he being to this group? Abundantly merciful. And it's the comparison that causes the problem. Why is he being fair to me and merciful to them? And the moment he is merciful to someone else, I now expect him to be that generous to me right now in my life. They supposed that they should have received more. And when they likewise received every man a penny, when they had received it, they murmured. And this, I think, is the lesson. Are you going to murmur if today is your fair day and that person's merciful day? Now, here's what we know about God in the end. Tell me what you know about our Heavenly Father. We've got to pull all our truths in. Tell me what you know about our Heavenly Father. If that person got a mercy day and I got a fair day today, tell me what you know about Heavenly Father. We have to add that to the parable. We have to put an assumption in here that some other day will be his mercy moment. And he will have a fair day. We have to grant Heavenly Father the ability to choose when to bless me and when to bless you. And I, ex I understand that it's not going to be at the same time. I grant Heavenly Father the ability to give you a mercy moment today because you need it. And I'm happy with the fair day. Today is my fair day but I'm going to hold on with all the hope I have in my, my soul that someday I will have a mercy moment. I don't have to have it today. I shouldn't tell God when to bless me. And just because he's blessing you shouldn't change my expectation. He's going to bless me. My mercy day is coming. And if today is yours, what should my response be? What's the most appropriate? When he rebukes them, what does he say? Verse 13. Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree for, with me for a penny? Take that as thine and go thy way. I give unto the I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what is mine? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Are you going to turn away from God because he knows that your mercy moment is that day, not today? Are you going to turn away from God if someone else gets their mercy moment today and you don't? Because I know, I trust with all my soul 
that someday your mercy moment will come. He will be this abundantly merciful to every single one of them in that, in their moment. And it doesn't have to be today. So if today is a, I am getting beaten up, Lord. If this is a, oh God, where art thou kind of day. If I'm beating my head, if I'm shaking my hands at heaven, like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail saying, where are you, God? And he says, Joseph, be patient. This is a fair day. And we're all going to have them. Your mercy moment is not today. But if someone else's is, don't be offended. They were angry at the Lord of the vineyard and offended because I'm not getting what you're getting today. Let me give you an illustration. Dieter Uchtdorf. Don't you love him? If I say Dieter Uchtdorf, what word comes to mind? Plain, right? Now, let me take you back in time. Um, Dieter was born in East Germany. His father was a government official and defected. And they left East Germany. I don't know how they got out, but they got out. And they immigrated to um, West Germany. Now, what are the chances a government official from East Germany is going to become a high-ranking profile, well-paid official in West Germany? Not going to happen, right? So guess what job this distinguished government official, who was, I believe, an honest man, Dieter's dad had to have been a good man. Guess what job he found in West Germany? Laundry. He owned a laundromat. He hired his son, Dieter, to deliver the clothes. And he provided a bike. Now, the bike he gave him was this massive iron horse of a back. The really thick ones that are heavy, that are hard to pedal up and down hills. Now, Dieter's friends all had shiny, new, sleek, red bicycles. And Dieter had this iron bike. Now, in that moment, Dieter had a chance to say what? <laughs> Today, he was being treated fairly. I want a nice, shiny red bike like all my friends have. And I get this humongous, heavy bike that is so hard to pedal. Today was his fair day. And he probably he could very easily have been angry at his dad, right? He could have shook his fist at his dad and say, you don't care about me like my other friends' dads care about them. They get a nice shiny red bike. I get this iron bike. You don't love me. Um, I just want to ask a question. So you have a descriptive word for the beginning and the end. We talk about Christ being in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Yes. Do you have a descriptive word for the middle? So we could probably make a combination, right? Fair, merciful. So what would be here? This is a good day, right? Better than I expected, but certainly not the day they're having. Do you see how those words just kind of increase? This is a really good day. This is a better day than I thought. This is, this is okay. 
And I could probably rank them as to what they expected they would be getting. And sometimes, boy, things are good. I'm kind of surprised things are good. And if we really push it, don't you think we could go up here? Today's really, really, today's a bad day. And I think we could get to Joseph Smith and Liberty Jello, shake your fist at heaven and say, how dare you? Where are you, God? All the way down to, I, 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 I don't know what to say. You are so kind. And there's the wrench. So let me go back to Dieter. It was not a good day for him. He compared the bike he had to the bikes his friends had. And felt slighted. He probably felt angry at his dad for not loving him as much as his friends. All right, ready? Fast forward 20 some odd years. Young Dieter Ukordorf is now wanting to be a pilot. He signed up for the Air Force. He goes in for his medical exam to be a pilot. The doctor comes into the room and says, you have a lung disease. You had a lung disease. There is scar tissue on your lungs. You grew up in West, East Germany. What did they do? How did they cure your lung disease? We don't have a cure for lung disease. How did you cure your lung disease? Do you remember what Dieter Urtorf said? What? What lung disease? You didn't have a special treatment for lung disease when you were young? No. You had lung, you had young disease, lung disease as a child. There is scar tissue on your lungs. And lung disease would normally kick you out of the Air Force. But yours is cured. What happened? And all of a sudden, what did he realize? It was the bike. It was the bike. It was the bike. Had God given him a mercy day, then what would he be taken away? Future career. An airplane. Now, young Dieter was probably mad that he didn't have the red bike, right? But which would Dieter Uchtdorf really rather have? A red, shiny, sleek bike when you're a kid or an airplane when you're an adult? And Heavenly Father knew that today is not the day to give you a red bike, Dieter. I know you, and I know what you really want. And you're going to look at this as a bad day when you compare yourself to everyone else. But trust me, something really, really good is coming because of today. And if you trust that on your bad days, on your fair days, even on your mediocre days, when someone else is being blessed abundantly, it doesn't mean you're not going to get a mercy day. So let's be happy 
for the person who's getting the mercy. Trusting what? He knows. He knows. He knows what is best for me, and I trust that someday he is going to be as abundantly merciful to me as I see him being to you today. Don't play this game of comparing blessings. Even with people you love, quite often we compare blessings. And we get angry at God that you're not doing to me what you're doing to that person right now. But if I'm pedaling that black bike and I'm angry at God that they're pedaling the red one, what's Heavenly Father saying to me? Just wait. Just trust me. Today is not that day, but it's coming. That's why I love this parable, because I think the expectation is wait. Don't compare blessings. Don't compare lives. Don't think God is being a fair or a bad or a slightly better God. Because he's not, because he's doing this to someone else. Someday, we will all have this moment. I testify, someday you will fall to your knees in absolute stunned gratitude at how good he is. But Joseph had a moment in Liberty Jail where he shook his fist and said, where are you, God? I think we're going to have those days. It's a matter of trusting him and not comparing what he's doing to me with what he's doing to you. A couple comments. Joy, you had a comment. Well, I was just thinking that <clears throat> the, the bite to God could have been a mercy day when he gave it to a food store the first day. Because he really wasn't being mean. He really was being kind. Like, this is me being merciful to you in a future time. Yeah. But, but the perception yeah. is the challenge. Yeah. So trusting that God is being merciful to me because he knows something. He knows everything. He knows what I really want. And just because today isn't my mercy day, doesn't mean I'm not going to have one. We do ourselves a disservice when we compare my blessings to your blessings in this one little snapshot of time. Sometimes we, we compare even lines. We've got to broaden everything and say, I trust that Heavenly Father has a plan for my life. Those who are born with limitations that other people don't have, do we believe in the same God being just as merciful to them? Absolutely. And so no one can really say, if you trust Heavenly Father, that I'm being not treated the same. It's a matter of faith to stop comparing blessings and trust that Heavenly Father has a plan for me. Any other comments? Um, it does make me think of, because last week it was the prodigal son, where he said, here in an institute, and 
Um, there's a talk by Elmer Holland called The Other Prodigal Son, and then it's kind of like the same lesson, basically. You know, don't compare blessings. And one of the, the quotes by, from this talk is um, this, who is it that whispers so suddenly in our ear that a gift given to another somehow diminishes the blessing we have received? Who makes us feel that if God is smiling on another, then he surely must somehow be frowning on us. And he says, it's Satan. And he's the one who does that. And I just thought it was so perfect with this, you know. If we are feeling that way, it probably doesn't come from God. It comes from him. I love, there's a scene in, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I think C.S. Lewis wrote Jesus into children's stories. So we fell in love with a, a lion who represents Christ so that we fell in love with Jesus in real life. I think he's trying to teach who Jesus is through these children's stories. And so in the, in the what is the second, really the second one, the horse and his boy, there's this kid who thinks he's just been shafted from the very beginning that God has been unkind and that, you know, he was, he was abandoned by his real parents. He almost starved to death. And then a fisherman found him and the fisherman was horribly unkind to him. And then all these bad things happened. He got trapped out of the city, had to sleep in the tombs. Uh, he got chased by a lion and then everyone else has to, you know, has, has to this, this, uh, this better life. So Shasta's on a horse and one leg of the journey, and he's just kind of feeling sorry for himself. And let me read it. I'm going to read right from the horse and his boy. He's just kind of, he's feeling sorry for himself because all these things have gone badly. And he wishes that he had the same luck that everyone else had. Come on. All right, so let me get to sorry, I had to read from another book to another class and I lost my place. Okay. Book number three. Ready? So Shasta's in this middle of the night, it's dark, he's on a horse. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erebus and Bree and Wynne are all snug as anything at the old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have gotten safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabbanash arrived, but I got left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he'd heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror, but now he had realized he really had something to cry about and stopped crying. The thing 
unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he, it, just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagined. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of the thing on, the, on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was loud, but not very large and deep. No, its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you, said Shasta after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible thing had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, you're not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother, and he'd been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story about his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and for all of their terrors in Tashban and, how his, and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I don't call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped his open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. Why? What for? Child. That I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? said Shasta. 
Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook, and, and again, myself. Loud and clear, and the third time, myself. Whispered so softly you could hear, you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around as if the leaves rustled. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. There must have begun to happen, that this must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead, he could hear birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and the ears and the head of the horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse didn't seem to be afraid of it, or else it could see, not see it. It was the lion that the light came. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life too far south in Kellerman to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashtan about the dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor above the, over the sea, the king of all, the high king in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew that he needn't say anything. The high king above all kings stooped toward him. Its mane and some its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about the mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with his tongue. He lifted his face and his eyes met. Then instantly, the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory, gathered themselves up, and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a gray hillside under a blue sky, and there were birds. Someday you're going to realize he's been with you the whole time. He was the lion that scratched Erebus in the back. He was the lion that scared that horses for the last journey. He was the lion that comforted him. He was there all along. But he knew when you needed to run. It is my testimony that you will have bad days. And people around you will be having very good days. But that doesn't mean God is unfair. Someday you will realize when you're driving your airplane why you needed to pedal that black bike. If today is someone else's mercy day, be happy for them. Rejoice with them. And trust that God has something great in store for you. That's why I love this prayer. Any last thoughts? Hard, isn't it?
Uh, I also think another parable you can kind of take from this, it's also kind of mentioned with it, is when you're having a merciful day, it, you still like try to compare to other people. So like God has blessed you with all these things and you have it literally in front of your face. People still find ways to, you know, renounce those gifts and blessings that they've given you and still want with the people on the fair day. It goes both ways, doesn't it? It's a beautiful thought. The idea is to just trust that Heavenly Father loves me and knows what's best for me and is going to bless me. And I need not shrug off those blessings, but be grateful for them. I love that. Any others? This parable changed my life when I realized I was so bad at, at wondering where was my blessing when someone near me got a blessing. It was making me angry that he was being good to that person. And just, that's so dumb that I was angry at God because he was being merciful to someone. But I had to learn. And I've lived long enough to know that I have had plenty of those merciful moments when someone else was having the day I was having. Trusting him. To do the right thing in my life is the key. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard sometimes when everything seems to go so right for other people. And sometimes we struggle and we wonder why. But I just, I know in the end, everyone gets abundant blessings when it was best for them to receive. Okay, should we take five minutes on Rich Young Ruler? Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. So that was Matthew 20. Let's jump back to Matthew chapter 19. Can I make more more comments? Please. So I wanted to point out to that this scale is a human scale because God is always good. So in that right? God's these aren't his words, are they? And specifically, it would go to verse 15, where he says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So he's pointing out, remember I'm good. All this is your perspective, and you don't see the full picture. Um, try and see it from above. That is so brilliant. It's me who puts this scale on. This is my human scale, not his. And I loved your comment that he was being kind to Dieter with the black bike. That was not an act of cruelty. That was an act of goodness to give him an airplane. And you're absolutely right. This was God doing good. This was God doing good. Beautiful perspective. Thank you. We're the ones that mess it up, don't we? Okay, let's do Matthew chapter 19. The, the, the overarching question, verse 16, what's the question? Question number one, verse 16, Matthew 19, 16. What's the, what's the question? What do, I have to do? what do I have to do to go to the celestial kingdom? Answer is obviously, right? What's the answer? End of verse 17, what's the answer? What is the first law? What's the law we made in the waters of baptism? It's the first law we make in the temple. What's the number one answer to that question? If you want to go to the celestial kingdom, keep the commandments. We call that the law of... Obedience. It started in the waters of baptism. It's repeated in the sacrament. Will you obey the commandments? 
The question though is, is there more? So he says, which commandments? Jesus lists them. Verse 20, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Is there one law in heaven? And is it obedience? Because I passed. I've obeyed. And the Lord says, there is an additional law. There are things tugging at your heart that are interfering with your obedience. You have to let go of those things. You have to let go of certain attitudes and desires. In other words, I can keep the commandments with a horrible attitude. And so there are things I have to let go of. What lack I yet? Now, what Jesus says to him is specific to him. His heart was being tugged by his riches. So what did Jesus say to him? Go and sell everything that you have. Someone else who's, let's say, for example, maybe their heart is being tugged by pride. What would Jesus have said to that person? Get off social media or whatever the test would have been. We can't say that in order to go to heaven, I have to give up everything I have and sell it to the poor. What kind of church would we have if everyone gave up everything we had and gave it to the poor? Would we be able to do his work? So the test isn't the specific test that he gave him. The test is what is tugging at your heart? What are the things that are tugging at your heart that are really pulling you away from God? Will you let go of those things? I think the thing that just like clicked in my mind is what you keep above God, mm -hmm. like what things you have more love for. Even when you obey him, right? You might go through the motions of obedience, but there's something in your heart that's above God. So what is the next law? Those of you who've been to the temple know exactly what the next covenant is, right? What's the next covenant? The law of sacrifice. Will you let go of that thing? And what did he do? He couldn't do it. An obedient person said, I can't do it. Is he headed for heaven? Answer the question. What shall I do to have eternal life? Is that person on that path headed towards eternal life? No, there's something ahead of God. And it's going to interfere in the end. So the law that the idea here is, is there something that tugs at your heart more than the things of God. Now, I know this morphs into a discussion about riches, but what's the point? There's so many other things like riches that tug at our hearts. So let me ask the question this way. If this is the celestial king, terrestrial and telestial, on my journey to the celestial, I kind of have to go through the telestial and terrestrial worlds. Think temple, the journey into the Father's presence is through the celestial world and through the terrestrial world. Meaning, if I'm going to move on, if I'm moving on, how much of the celestial world can I take with me into the next step? 
None of it. If I can't let go of celestial things, where will I stay? In the celestial world. And then I'll just be pulled down. So let's suppose I let go of all the celestial things. Okay, I've gotten rid of all the celestial. And I get out of the celestial world. What's next? You have to, how many terrestrial things can I take with me into the celestial kingdom? None. Even if I'm going through the motions of obedience, I'm not going to walk away from them in the end if they tug at my heart. And so, yeah, Jesus is talking about rich people having a hard time going to heaven, but is the same thing true of prideful people? Do prideful people have the same struggle going to heaven? Do addicted people to popularity, for example, I have to have people's praise are they going to have the same hard time going to the celestial kingdom? Anything that you can identify as celestial and terrestrial is going to have the same effect, whether it's money or pride or anything else. How much anger against you can I take into the celestial kingdom? If I am just a quick-to-be-angry person, can I go to the celestial kingdom like that? No. At some point, what do I have to do? I gotta let it go. It's as hard for an angry person to be saved as it is for a rich person to be saved, as it is to, for a prideful person to be saved. The point is, are you going to let go in that critical moment where the test comes? And he says, There's some things you're holding on to. Will you let go of them? If the answer is no, then this is where you stay. This is the room you stay in. You can't hold on to these things and go into the next room. I think what this parable is asking is, are there celestial and terrestrial things that you hold tightly on to? And if those things have to stay in the room, do you stay in the room with them? Or would you let go of them? Um, sorry, I'm trying to put it into perspective. So, you bring your story with you, but you change the narrative. Would that be a correct way? To I like that. Because, like, it's not like you're letting go fully. Like, you're not going to forget everything you've learned. No. You're, you have to learn those lessons or to grow. And yeah. you kind of have to bring part of it with you in order to, like, know to stay, yeah. like, in the good things you did do. Do you know why I'm very careful around fire? I'm very careful around fire. Can you guess why? Because as a child, I burned my hand. Yeah. Now, yeah, if I forget, if I ever forget burning my hand, what do I run the risk of doing? Repeating that. So that's the, I can't let yeah. go of what, I, what taught me that lesson, but I can let go of the mistake I made. Yeah, it changed the narrative. I changed the narrative. Because I'm letting go of what caused the pain. That's a beautiful way to put it. So what this, what this story is really saying is, and you can change this word for so many others, right? They, get, they, they have a conversation about riches and salvation, but could Jesus have had a conversation about pride and salvation, anger and salvation, laziness and salvation, lust and salvation? How much lust can I take into the celestial kingdom? None. 
So if I struggle with lust, if I can't leave the room unless I let go of lust and it controls me, guess which room I stay in? And that's the point. It's not rich. It's not that rich people can't go to heaven. It's that people whose riches are more important than God can't go to heaven. Prideful people whose pride is more important than God can't go to heaven. And that's what he's trying to teach. The one thing I learned on my mission is how I kind of taught like this type of thing is God wants you to be comfortable because wherever you're going to, whatever your vices are or whatever is where stay. you're going to stay. That's right. And God wouldn't want you to move up to the celestial kingdom if you have these vices because no empathy can, can live with them. So it's like wherever, you, whatever vices you have is where you'll be the most comfortable. But obviously you'll be the most comfortable in the celestial kingdom if you choose to live with God. Yeah. But people are too. The greatest potential happiness is with him. But he, if this is going to make you happy, he'll let you have it. As President Nelson put it, the biggest FOMO. Yeah. You got it. Kingdom. Yeah, you got it. And so I love that. that what a great week to be studying these parables. Because one of them is a, is a reminder of God's character. The other one is a reminder of God's priorities. And to say, look, I... God is so kind and merciful that if this isn't the day for me to be blessed, I'm not going to be angry because today is your day. That's his character. He's always good. I love that analogy. But I don't see him as always good. That's my problem. And then the other one is he has a lifestyle that is the greatest store force of happiness. But if I won't let go of the things that would Get me there. He'll let me have a lesser happiness. So are you holding on to something in one of the lesser rooms? Now, sorry, I try not to quote C.S. Lewis too much, but C.S. Lewis wrote another book called The Great Divorce. It's a story of a group of ghosts from hell that go on vacation to heaven. And when they get there, they're told they can stay. Anyone can stay in heaven as long as you let go of the one thing that you're holding on to that's keeping you in hell. A whole bus full of ghosts come to heaven. Guess how many people stay? One. All of the rest, when it comes down to it, can't let go of something. Now, they'll have little, they'll have little escorts come out of heaven and say, hey, come up to heaven. And they have a little conversation. And you can kind of tell what the one thing they're holding on to. But there's always something they couldn't let go of. So they get back on the bus and go back to hell rather than let go of that one thing. But there's one person. He has a red lizard on his shoulder. I think that represents the natural man. Will you let go of the natural man? And here comes a fiery angel. I think it's Christ that says, can I rip it off? And he eventually rips that lizard off. He's the only person willing to let go of the things that were keeping me in a lesser happiness. Now, here's the lesson. The things you're holding on to don't even compare to the things you would receive if you let go of them. There's no comparison. Whatever you're holding on to that's keeping you in a lower room, it doesn't compare to what you would get if you let go of it. Lust, people can't let go of lust, right? But what would be theirs if they let go of lust? 
a joy that lust will never give them. So unlike this guy who couldn't let go, the invitation is everything in the lesser rooms, you've got to let go of. I remind myself all the time, there is no ounce of my pride that I can take with me to the celestial kingdom. Every time my pride face rears itself, I say to myself, I can either hold on to this or I can let go and go to the celestial kingdom. Anger, laziness. Take some time this week or next week as we study this and ask yourself, what would Jesus say? What would be my test? His test was go sell everything you have. What would my test be? What would he say to me to let go? And would you do it? And those who can't, those who can't let go will have as hard a time going to celestial kingdom as a camel going through a needle. You can't take your pride. A camel could fit through the eye of a needle better than you could go to celestial kingdom holding on to your pride. Just can't happen. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.